as I record this, the invasion of Ukraine by Vladimir Putin's Russia is less than 24 hours old. We still don't know much about how this is going to play itself out. But what we do know is that the future of America's role in the world is dramatically going to change. Much of what we have taken for granted since the end of the Cold War is no longer true. And that's going to require some serious choices for American foreign policymakers and American citizens moving forward. I'm Dr. Nolte, and this is Blind Politics. And welcome, podcast listeners, to another episode of Blind Politics with Dr. Nolte. I am Dr. A.J. Nolte, Assistant Professor of Government at Regent University's Robertson School of Government. Once again, views expressed in this podcast do not represent those of either Regent University or the Robertson School. Please remember you can rate and subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast provider. You can find us on Facebook at Blind Politics with Dr. Nolte and on Facebook and Instagram through the Robertson School of Government pages. I want to apologize if this podcast sounds a little bit different. My family and I have been kind of on and off sick since Christmas. We all had the flu, then we all got Omicron, and now we all have something else. But, you know, the reality of that is, if it sounds like I'm sick, that's because I am. And so hopefully we will all be moving past that soon. But I wanted to get this out as soon as possible because we have had one of the most important geopolitical events of my lifetime. I was five when the Berlin Wall came down. I remember hearing about it at that age, but not really fully understanding and hearing about the idea of East Germany and West Germany, which I was born in West Germany on a U.S. military base, but that those countries were going to be reunited. That was in my lifetime. My parents have memories of going to West Germany, you know, seeing that, that country that was you know, under basically de facto Soviet occupation, the jure, the Stasi, and the German Democratic Republic regime were, you know, almost as intense as the Gestapo in East Germany. But in practice, that regime was propped up by the Soviet Union. And I remember the wall coming down. And I remember in first grade, one of my, my earliest political international memories was we had these things called weekly readers that we would get in school. And I remember having a weekly reader where they were talking about all of these new countries that now existed that had declared their independence. Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania were the three big ones at that time period. And there was this wave of new countries as the Soviet Union went away and countries that had been subjugated by Russian and communist imperialism, were now for the first time in a very long time gaining their freedom. And so I've always kind of had this emotional memory, I guess, of Estonia and Latvia and Lithuania. And there were other countries too that were, were part of this. Of course, this is the backdrop of the democratization of Eastern Europe. Before this, I would say, was, was probably the most significant global foreign policy event. 9-11 for Americans would, would be on par. But if you talk about shifts in the global balance of power, 
the collapse of the Soviet Union was the most important geopolitical event of my lifetime up until this week. And it's probably still is in the way that it sets the stage for what's happening now. But this is certainly the most important geopolitical event since then, particularly for countries that we think of as the West. Because now we have a ruler in Russia who is explicitly trying to reverse the events of 1991. As we are looking at an invasion of Ukraine kicked off after a, a pretext years in the making by Putin. And let's be clear, the claims that he's making about denazification and genocide against Russian speakers in Ukraine were a pretext. A pretext largely of his creation. As we are looking now at the Russians attacking the Ukrainian capital, the Russians moving in to essentially, based on U.S. intelligence, and U.S. intelligence has been shockingly good thus far, and what they're saying they want to do is go in and purge everyone who is a Ukrainian nationalist, everyone who is part of the anti-Putin opposition. But God willing, most of them are in Poland, right? What we're seeing is now an attempt by force to overturn the dissolution of the Soviet Union. And we're seeing that by a guy who has told us for decades that he regards the collapse of the Soviet Union as the single greatest historical tragedy of the 20th century. A regime that murdered 40 million people, that created a, a famine in Ukraine that killed 4 million Ukrainians. It's, it's the Nazis, it's Mao, and it's Stalin in terms of which regime was the most heinous in the 20th century. And it's closer than you might think. And that regime's collapse is something that Putin sees as one of the greatest tragedies of the 20th century. And he wants to reverse it by force. This is an unprecedented moment. And frankly, it's something I didn't think that he would actually go through with. When this whole escalation started, I thought that maybe he would try to take a chunk. Take that minor incursion that Joe Biden tacitly gave him permission for. And I think, you know, to, to step back for a second... I think there's a lot of blame to go around in the American domestic context. And some of that attaches to, to Joe Biden. But this is not primarily a domestic American crisis. You know, this is not primarily about who our president is. I don't think this would have happened under a different president, perhaps. But that demonstrates the point that I think that we should take from this, which, which I will come back to in a minute. But it's not primarily, this is not primarily about Joe Biden. Yes, his weakness is part of the problem and part of what led to this. But... The person who's ultimately responsible for this is Vladimir Putin. There is no sugarcoating the fact that we are witnessing something that has changed the game. It is a major land war in Europe for the first time since 1945. It is a major land war in Europe where one of the countries is a nuclear power that has threatened potential nuclear retaliation, at least obliquely, if anybody gets involved with its sphere of influence. And it has exposed a lot of myths about foreign policy that we as Americans have believed for a long time. And it has exposed the myths of both interventionists and non-interventionists in America in some important ways. I'll start with the non-interventionist myth because that's the easiest one to expose. It has exposed the myth that, oh, you know, if the U.S. just doesn't get involved, everything will be fine. 
Yeah. Nobody's going to die. Nothing bad's going to happen. Really, most of the bad stuff that happens in the world is, is because of the U.S., right? And if it wasn't for the U.S., none of these bad things would happen. I'm sorry, but that's not credible. If the U.S. were not, in fact, playing the role that it plays in the world, this would have happened sooner. There would be more people under tyranny. There would be more people that were at risk of being killed by, the, by regimes like that of Putin or the Xi Jinping regime in China. Okay? The alternatives are not the United States or gumdrops and lollipops. You know, the United States or some perfect utopian alternative in which we don't have to lift a finger and the world is fine. The alternatives are the U.S. and chaos, anarchy, great power war, and lots of people dead. Lots of instability, political, economic, international, etc. The alternatives essentially are the U.S. or nothing. Right? International relations theorists start from the premise that the natural state of international relations is anarchy. Okay? Anarchy, if we apply it at our micro level, looks like, you know, a dystopian post-apocalyptic scenario. The government has collapsed and everybody's fighting over cans of soup in the trash, right? On a macro level, it's like that, but nations armed with nuclear weapons. It's not a great thing. And at the end of the Cold War, we had the situation where the U.S. was powerful enough to say, you know what? No, we are going to limit anarchy. We are going to, through the power of the United States of America, impose limits on this anarchic system. And that is now seriously challenged for the first time. So the non-interventionists need to be clear about what they are saying. What they are saying is that we would prefer anarchy, great power war, deaths, in significant numbers, the strong preying on the weak, severe financial instability that's, by the way, going to impose costs on the United States at home. If you don't think that's true, look, by the time you're listening to this, you know that's true because of what gas prices have probably done between the time that I record this, which is on Thursday afternoon, and the time that you're actually hearing this. So you know that these things can, can affect you where you live. When you pull up at the pump, not to mention the humanitarian crisis, not to mention global instability, right? Not to mention all the things that we take for granted. Everything you buy, everything you own was produced because of the stability provided by the hegemonic influence of the United States of America. And yes, I said the word hegemony. We are a hegemon. And if we're not a hegemon, everything you own becomes harder, becomes more expensive. Everything you do becomes harder, becomes more expensive. And you, you live in a globalized world. That's not going to go away if the United States is gone. It's just you go from a globalized world where there were some rules to one where there are absolutely no rules, except for the fact that, you know, the strong will prey on the weak. That's the alternative. We now see it. We are staring it in the face. This is the alternative to American power, to American hegemony. If you're comfortable with that, then yeah, non-interventionism is good strategy. Okay. But here's the counter to that. Uh, and it's not really necessarily a counter, but it is a sobering slap in the face of reality to the interventionist side. For a variety of reasons and through a variety of poor choices, we can now no longer take for granted that our preponderance of military and economic power is going to remain unchallenged. Because, it is, because this is a direct challenge. 
The U.S. said no, and Putin went ahead and did it anyway on something that was a major, major throwdown. This is a great power essentially challenging the United States directly in our face. And what that means is from now on, every time we try to enforce those rules that we've taken for granted, those benefits of American hegemony that we've taken for granted, and I will put myself more on the interventionist side because I think American hegemony is a good thing. It just got harder. It's not a default anymore. It's not de facto. And we have less margin for error than we did before. The U.S. could afford to do a lot of stupid stuff from the Cold War until, you know, today. We can afford to distract ourselves with a lot of things that were not as important. But now we need to have a really strong focus on how do we maintain our position as the preeminent power in the world, as the guarantor of the order that has brought peace and stability and rules and limited anarchy, and in so doing, lifted hundreds of thousands of people out of poverty, spread religious freedom throughout large portions of the globe, and allowed for unprecedented human flourishing. There are some downsides. There are always downsides. There are always costs. There is no such thing as a free lunch. But we, as Americans, have been having the closest thing to a free lunch that you can get in foreign policy since the collapse of the Soviet Union, where we had the freedom to kind of do what we wanted. But that margin is shrinking now. We have to be smarter. We have to be sober, serious, and disciplined with our foreign policy. We have to make a very clear-eyed assessment of what is and what is not in our national interests. And we can't just assume we can do whatever we want without challengers, because Vladimir Putin has just demonstrated you can come straight at the United States. And there's a good chance he gets away with it or appears to have gotten away with it. Now, are there choices we made that made this more likely? Yes. And so in hindsight, we're going to need to step back and take a clear right assessment of that. I think one of those choices is the pullout in Afghanistan last year. I remember saying at the time that us pulling out of Afghanistan would make it more likely that there would be a bigger war that we would get pulled into because it would make it more likely that someone would challenge us. We don't like to think this way as Americans, but the basic reality is this. There are bad actors in the world. Russia, China, Iran, North Korea, non-state actors like Al-Qaeda and ISIS. And if those bad actors aren't afraid of America, they're going to start doing bad things. We need to be feared if we are going to be able to impose the types of rules, the types of peace, the types of global stability and security that we have taken for granted. And the only reason that we were able to do that is because bad actors were a little bit afraid of us. And they're not now. And that's a problem. Because it's always harder to reestablish that sense that you are a dominant power. And really, the only way to do it is by when someone challenges you, when someone comes right at you, you smack them hard in the face until they quit. You know, I hate to put it in those crude terms, but re the reality is it is an anarchic system. And we have fooled ourselves for a long time into thinking that it is not because we have done such a good job of imposing rules that we forget those rules are based on force. They're based on our ability and perceived willingness to back those rules up with force. And if we're not perceived as willing and able to do that again, then we will have to reestablish that. 
And reestablishing that is going to be a lot more expensive than it would have been to maintain it in the first place. I think it's good. I think it's important. I think it's a thing that we need to do. But we shouldn't kid ourselves. This is going to be hard. It's going to be expensive. It's going to require bipartisan commitments from sober and serious-minded people who are willing to actually start thinking about things in terms of the U.S. interests and not in terms of owning the libs or owning the cons or whatever stupid crap you're thinking about for the next election because this is a little bit bigger than that. We can't have the fights that we want to have domestically if we don't maintain our position as who we are. You know, there was an op-ed recently by several Catholic writers, Sora Bamari, who's been Catholic for about five minutes, and Patrick Deneen, who thinks that he's a scholar of Locke, but actually he's terrible, and some other guy who doesn't matter. And they wrote an op-ed in the New York Times, essentially arguing that the U.S. is the problem, right? And these are, are Catholic conservatives. The U.S. is the problem, and we should be nicer to China and treat them as civilizational equals and not be so mean to the Russians and all this kind of stuff. China is one of the world's biggest persecutors of Christians. That includes Catholics. Russia is about to go in and try to crush the Ukrainian Catholic Church. The best friend Roman Catholics around the world today have is the stability and security that has been provided by U.S. power. So it's this very myopic view held by a couple of rad-trad Catholic integralists on the right who seem to think that you know, the Roman Catholic Church only exists as a remnant in the United States of America, and they're incapable of dealing with or even thinking about the global reach of that. Because the Roman Catholic Church has flourished in an environment of religious freedom and religious liberty. It's spreading, it's growing in large portions of the global south. How's that going to work out when China starts exerting its influence in Africa? when it starts exploiting and imposing neocolonialism in those parts of Africa to a much greater degree than it has already. And when it undercuts Christianity in Africa because China, the Chinese government sees Christianity as a threat. That's not going to work out very well for the Roman Catholic Church. Or when China decides to turn the Philippines, one of the world's largest Catholic countries, into a client state. That's not going to work out very well. All right? So we need to be realistic here. There's a difference between the disagreements that you have with the U.S. in terms of domestic policy. I have many. The disagreements with some of the things that we're promoting. You know, one of the arguments they make is that it's horrible that the U.S. is promoting LGBTQ stuff around the world. I don't think that's super great. I think that it's probably one of those things that is taking away from our national security because it does tend to drive people into the arms of Russia and China. So I think that it's counterproductive to U.S. national interests. I'm not going to disagree on that. But I'm also going to say that at the same time, because the U.S. has been incoherent on a lot of things, the U.S. is one of the only countries in the world that's actively promoting religious freedom. That's actively trying to stop people killing Christians in large portions of the world. So are you willing to say, I'm okay with Christians in the third world dying, Catholic integralists, if it means that there's going to be less promotion of LGBT because that's essentially the trade-off that you're making because it's not like Russia or China is going to do that. And I don't think Viktor Orban, who maybe would be inclined to do that is going to emerge as the leader of the world's new superpower. That's not going to happen. So what you're talking about essentially is an abdication of your responsibility to your fellow Christians because you're mad that the U S is promoting LGBTQ stuff. 
I'm not happy about that either. But maybe instead of throwing the baby out with the bathwater, we should try to fix it. Shine a light on it. Explain why you think it's bad. And try to do something about it. Instead of just saying, you know what? This means that all of U.S. foreign policy is terrible. And we should get rid of it. And we should be fine with China not only killing the Uyghurs, but also killing huge numbers of Christians. And just, you know, they're just an equal. Because morally they're not. Okay? You know, not to mention the subjugation of a bunch of Catholic countries in Eastern Europe, which seems to be where Putin is wanting to go. The upshot of this is there's a lot of unseriousness about foreign policy. We've treated foreign policy as something that's not really serious. That's not really important. It's a luxury. So we can believe stupid things and do stupid things in foreign policy because, you know, it doesn't really affect us. Those days are over. We don't have time for nonsense. We certainly don't have time for utopian, non-interventionist nonsense that says that we can just, America can just not do things and that'll be fine. But we also don't have time for this utopian idea that international institutions will just perpetuate themselves. And if we slap some sanctions on something, that'll be fine. And, you know, we can go to very traditionalist societies and fly a rainbow flag at our embassy and not, and not like suffer the consequences of trying to impose that. No, we don't have time for this. We don't have time for a lot of this nonsense, you know, but we also don't have time to just say, well, because we do this nonsense, then we're bad and we should let Russia and China just, I don't know, take over or cause chaos or whatever. The alternative is, to be fair, not that the Catholic integralists have really put any more thought into exactly what they want to do domestically either. So, you know, these are not people that have a, a well thought out coherent program for how they want to do anything. But, you know, the dumber version of this argument is being made on Tucker Carlson every night. And it's a dumb argument. And there are counters to it, right? Why should we care what happens to little countries? Well, because if you don't defend little countries now, you're going to have to defend bigger countries that are a lot closer to you, that are extremely important to your reliance system later, right? It's like we don't learn anything from history. Aggressive expansionist powers are not deterred when you give them a slice of cake. They want more, right? Give them a little country and then they want a big one. There's a pattern here. It's not really that hard if you look at history to determine that pattern. But people don't want to do that, right? Because people have this idea that we're immune to foreign policy and it's not fair. Why do we have to be the most powerful country in the world? We have benefited immensely from being the most powerful country in the world as Americans. I'm not a person who is big into this whole concept of privilege because I think it's overused and it's used in stupid ways by stupid conceptual paradigms. But the one area where you can clearly say that there is an example of privilege is to be born a citizen of the United States of America. If you were born a citizen of the United States of America, you have a privilege that is extended to very few people in history. You have more opportunity. You have more realistic chance of fulfilling your dreams and aspirations, whatever they might be, than you would in almost any other country in the world. And if you're a racial or religious or ethnic minority, I would say than really any country in the world. Because a lot of the other Western democracies are frankly pretty racist. Okay, America is a good country. And being born American is a privilege. And is a privilege that you did not earn. And that most of us who have not served in the military have not had to sacrifice one thing for. You know, as somebody who is born blind in the United States, most countries of the world even many Western industrialized democracies, I would not have had the opportunity to be here, sitting here today as a professor at a good university 
teaching and doing research and doing the things that I do and producing this podcast. This would not happen in most countries, right? And that is a privilege that I have. I didn't earn it. I'm not entitled to it. But with that comes a certain amount of responsibility. And part of that responsibility is that we will have to make sacrifices and we will have to make choices to maintain that position that our country enjoys. And it's not that others don't benefit. That's the great thing about American privilege is that it's also something that benefits most of the rest of the world. And the countries and the people that don't benefit from American leadership of the world are bad actors who want to overthrow the system that we're in. There are costs. There are negative externalities. There are things that I would change if I could, that I would fix if I could. We could always do better, right? It's a more perfect union, not a perfect union. And we are a flawed, imperfect country and power, but that doesn't change the fact that we are also a good one. We are a good power. We are a good country. And we are one of the most benign hegemons the world has ever seen. All of that now, all of that is at risk. So what comes next? I don't know what Putin's going to do next because I'll be honest with you. I didn't necessarily think that he would go this far, this fast. He hasn't, he hasn't before. And a lot of people will say in hindsight, well, you know, we all should have seen this coming. He said he was going to do it. Yeah, but he said he's going to do it before, right? And he hasn't. In no way am I letting us as Americans, as the West, as, as the NATO alliance off the hook for not being more forward-leaning in deterring him. Because if somebody says they're going to do something, you have to take them seriously. But on the other hand, to be a little bit fair, you know, he's been talking in some of these ways for a long time. And he was always much more opportunistic. He was always a leader who would kind of take what he was given and not really push the envelope. He's pushing the envelope big time here. He is directly confronting the United States and saying, come at me. And that's just, that has not been his MO in the past. This is a major, major escalation. So I don't know what he's going to do next. You know, normally I would say he'd stop at Ukraine. But we, we didn't think he would do this. So is it possible that he tries to invade the Baltic countries to re reverse that Estonia, Latvia, Lithuanian independence that I remember reading about for the first time when I was six? Yeah, it's very possible. And we need to be aggressively and actively preparing up to and including the commitment of major military force to make sure that if he does that, that he knows that he's going to war directly with the United States. We do the same thing in Poland. I think we also need to be, whatever is happening in Ukraine, whatever resistance there is, because I, I think there will be, I don't think the Ukrainians are just going to take this lying down. You know, you've got somebody who's talking about wiping your nation off the map. There's going to be a response from that. We need to help them. We signed a treaty in 1994 that said that if Ukraine gave up their nuclear weapons, we would protect them and we would help them and we would gar help guarantee their independence. And we have not lived up to that. And what that means is that in the future, it's going to be harder for people to trust us. It affects our credibility. It affects our soft power and it affects our ability to get allies to do things for us, right? This is the thing that people, Americans forget is if you want allies, they want things from you. They want guarantees. They want certain aspects of your support. And so if we want to preserve that, if we want to preserve those alliances, we have to demonstrate that we are a reliable and trustworthy ally and that we're not going to just tuck tail and run when the polls look bad. This is another problem where Afghanistan 
again, decreases her credibility and has an impact. And, you know, people who are supportive of this president will not want to hear that, but it's a fact. When you abandon an ally and you let them get rolled the way we did, people don't trust you as much. And it goes back to something people who are supporters of the previous president aren't going to want to hear. We let Turkey do that to the Kurds in Syria under Trump. We let the Afghan National Army get rolled now under Biden. If we don't actively support the Ukrainians in resisting this invasion to a much higher degree than we have to this point, up to and including sending weapons at a minimum, and hopefully, you know, beyond that as well, punishing Russia, isolating Russia, refusing to recognize any puppet state that they put in place, it is unfortunate that the Russian people should suffer for Vladimir Putin's decision here. But unfortunately, that's the reality. Putin should be, I think, sanctioned personally as well. But the only way at this point that this is going to be reversed, and it is in the U.S. interest to reverse it, is we have to systematically erode the Russians' will to fight. And that means taking very, very tough positions and very, very tough actions that will make it impossible for Putin to justify to his own people the cost of the fight. And that is going to be much harder and much bloodier and much more tragic for the Ukrainian people than it would have been three weeks ago. But that's where we are as of now. I don't know if the current administration is up to it. I hope they are. And I say that genuinely and sincerely. I don't think Biden wanted this. I don't think that he expected this. And I hope that he realizes that his legacy is on the line in ways that it never has been before. That if he lets this stand, then he's going to go down alongside the likes of Neville Chamberlain. And if he doesn't want to be that guy, then he's going to have to respond much more forcefully. And he's got to become a wartime president almost immediately. Engaging in a war that could get hot with a nuclear-armed adversary, which is not great. It's not great. It is necessary. It is absolutely necessary. Don't kid yourself otherwise, because this is only a foretaste of what happens if we don't. What we're seeing, what we're witnessing now, is only the beginning. The economic disruptions at home, the humanitarian crisis abroad. If you think about how destabilizing to Europe and to the United States and to the world order the Syrian refugee crisis was, there's like 40 million people in Ukraine. And a lot of them are going to want to get out of the country. And they're not going east. So we now have a major crisis and a major pivot point. And we have to be up to it as a country because there is nobody else. You know, you would hope that maybe this will shake the Germans out of their lethargy. You would hope that maybe some of the Europeans will start realizing that they need to be also responsible for their own defense. The Eastern Europeans are not the problem. But old Europe, and particularly the Germans, need to get off their butts, start rebuilding nuclear power plants, and increase their military spending substantially. Because they bought peace on the cheap from us. And what that means is that if American resolve is gone, all of a sudden, you have no defense. Germany has basically no defense. Other than us. And so how willing are you going to be to rely on that permanently, indefinitely? When also, by the way, your decision to get rid of your nuclear plants left Europe vulnerable to energy manipulation by Putin. The Germans have a lot to answer for in this. 
you know, as a country that wants to position itself as the leader of Europe, they have a lot to answer for. So this is, again, not just an American thing, not just an American problem. And I'm certainly not saying we should go alone. We should build strong alliances globally. There should be burden sharing. But we have to take the lead because clearly no one else is, is willing or able or capable of doing so. So that's the situation that we face now globally. I can't tell you what's going to happen next in Ukraine. I can tell you I don't think it's going to be quite as easy as Putin thinks. I think that there will be more resistance. I think there will be more pushback. I think that he's taking a huge risk domestically, whether he knows it or not. And, you know, I, I was listening recently to someone who said, well, you know, if there is an insurgency, the Russians will just level the cities. The Russians, after making a big deal about the central importance of Kiev to you know, Mother Russia, it's not like they can just go in and, and do that, you know, without facing blowback at home. The Russians don't, the Russian people might not care as much about what happens to Kabul. They care about what's going to happen to Kiev. And so there are restrictions. The, the Russians aren't going to be able to just treat this like it's another Chechnya. But I suspect they're probably going to try. That's what they know. That's their doctrine. And how is that going to work out in the long run? It's hard to say, but I would not necessarily assume that this is a fait accompli and that this can't be reversed over time. But the thing that Putin does, I think, understand is he can't leave now, right? He can't install a puppet regime and leave because what happens when he leaves? The puppet regime gets overthrown. The new government that replaces them immediately applies for NATO membership and it will be granted. So that's not going to happen. So I don't think he's going to leave. The Russians are going to have to occupy Ukraine. And it's going to, to make Iraq and Afghanistan for the United States look like a walk in the park by comparison. So it's going to be bloody. It's going to be bad. I don't know that anybody really wins from this. But I do know that the days of us being able to take for granted our hegemony, our hegemonic position are over. That doesn't mean that we inevitably have to decline. Decline is a choice. And we've made choices that have put us in this position. We can make different choices in the future. But one of those choices is we have to start seriously evaluating presidents and candidates for president based on a sober-minded and serious understanding of their foreign policy capacities. Not only their values, but their capacity for foreign policy decision-making. Joe Biden said when he got elected, the adults are back. That is clearly not the case. But we need the adults to be back. And we need it to happen sooner rather than later. All right, that's going to be a wrap for this super depressing episode. Please remember to rate and subscribe on your favorite podcast provider. As I said I, at the beginning, I've been a little under the weather, so I'm a bit behind on podcasts. But hopefully we'll be catching up and getting back to our regular schedule in March. And I will try not to be as sick for everyone's sake. Thank you again for listening. Please rate and subscribe and pass this podcast to all your friends. And hey, I've got an even better reason for you to do that now. I am in my 10-year year review, and this podcast is part of that process. So the more shares we can get and downloads and all those other happy metrics, the better. So I would really appreciate those five-star ratings, share, download, pass it to all your friends, and you know all those, those types of things. So that's going to be a wrap for today. And for Blind Politics, this is Dr. Nolte signing off. Mm -hmm.